Good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel. I want to say just thank you so much for being here, and especially if you're one of the uh, folks that happen to be watching online, let me just say we want to welcome you this morning as well. And I, I want to just pause for just a moment and just encourage you, because on our website, um, and you can do that if you're in the audience as well, but we have a virtual connect card. And one of the things that the Lord really has burdened me with lately is that, you know, as we go through circumstances um, over the last several months that we have not anticipated, expected, or really want to be in, let's be honest, um, we need one another. We need to be able to know how it is that we can specifically pray for one another. We need to know what it is that we're struggling with. It's okay to admit that you're not okay. And so I want to encourage you, even if you're at home, I want you to fill that out and we as a staff just count it a privilege to pray for you. But I do want to appreciate um, just the band this morning. I was just thinking, um, even in my own soul, I I have a little bit of angst um, and I just needed to hear that even... um, Even when we don't see it, God is still at work. He is sovereign. He's not surprised. And we can rest in that. Amen? Hey, if you got your Bibles, grab them. I want to encourage you to go over to Matthew chapter 20. That's where we're going to find ourselves. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you know we're in a uh, a series this summer called Sunday School Stories. We're talking about lessons lived or lessons learned, specifically some of those things that become so familiar to us, especially if you ended up growing up in church and you just heard these stories, and so they become familiar to the point that we actually forget them. And so our quest, really, as we go through this summer and we look at these passages, is for us to kind of discover what is... What does it look like in these familiar stories for us to live out certain characteristics that God has called us to? So we're going to find ourselves in a, in a story that I, I think really at first reading is kind of humorous, but then when we really start to get under the hood a little bit, we find um, man, some things that we can, I hope, intersect with our lives today in some pretty significant ways. So I hope in enough time there you are in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be in just eight verses, 20 through 28. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to dive right in and see what God has to say this morning. God's word says this, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, follow that for a moment. James and John asked their mom to go to Jesus to get a favor. That should strike you as a bit humorous. Like these guys are following Jesus. Mom, I need you to do us a favor. You got to go ask Jesus for something. We'll go on. We'll talk about that in here a little bit. I love what Jesus says. In verse, uh, he says in verse number two, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two are to mind to sit the one at the right and the left. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom has been prepared for by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And Jesus called to them and said, Now you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray, and we're going to dive into this text. Father, I pray that this morning that you would illuminate the text, God, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us. Father, I pray that you would challenge us this morning. Father, I pray that in the midst of our circumstances, we would recognize, remember, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God revealed. And that he came not to, to serve himself, but to serve other people. He did that by giving himself as a ransom. Father, there is nothing more glorious than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So work on our hearts, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what you need to know. Matthew 20 as a whole is a kingdom conversation. And there is an upside-down nature to God's kingdom. There's a worldly kingdom, but there's an upside-down nature to what God's kingdom looks like. Because in God's kingdom, the first are last. In God's kingdom, the lowest are equal. In God's kingdom, grace doesn't depend on our effort. It's, it's there in God's kingdom that the poor in spirit actually receive kingdom inheritance. That greatness is actually sacrificial service. It's not some prominent position that, that we are able to obtain. It's what God's kingdom looks like. So if you go away from here today and you uh, just remember one thing, I'd want you to know this, that the mission of God's kingdom is advanced by servant leaders. Let me say that again. The mission of God's kingdom is advanced by servant leaders. You know, we all actually live in a worldly kingdom, but we serve in God's kingdom. If you think about that for a moment, the kingdom of the world says to serve yourself. God's kingdom says, serve other people. The kingdom of the world says, promote yourself. God's kingdom says, promote the cross of Christ. The kingdom of the world says, you need to lead by domination. God's kingdom says, you need to lead with love and you need to lead with humility. The kingdom of the world says, it's going to cost others to serve you. God's kingdom says, it's going to cost you to serve other people. So then we got to ask, what in the world were James and John thinking when they actually get uh, their mom to ask Jesus if they can have some kind of prominent position in the kingdom of God? One thing I know for absolutely certain is they did not yet understand the nature of God's kingdom in any way. See, they operate under the same principles that exist today. You know what those principles are? That greatness is who gets there first. Position and power is our goal. And the point is so that others can see our somewhat perceived greatness. But Jesus does something radical here because when he begins to bring kingdom clarity, he dismantles this self-glorifying understanding of the way that the kingdom of God functions. And when he does that, what he is doing is he is resetting how radical it is that the gospel calls us to lead in the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you this morning because each of us are called to lead. We lead in the marketplace, we lead in the community, in our churches, in our homes, in our individual lives. We are all leaders in some sphere. So if you think leadership is only defined by those with position in your workplace, 
or in your church, you have failed to understand what God calls us to when we talk about the idea of godly, biblical leadership. Mom and dad, you lead in your homes. You lead in your individual lives. You lead in the sphere of influence that you have in the marketplace with those that God has placed and purposed around you. Just as much as you lead if you are in that audio booth or if you are downstairs serving in kids or if you are on this stage preaching the word of God, we all lead. So talking about servant leadership, Al Mohler says this about leaders. Leaders are driven by beliefs that lead to an action. So when God saves you, it was actually the belief in the gospel that starts to frame how it is that we lead in the place that God has placed and purposed us to be, wherever that looks like for you. I don't want anyone to walk away from this this morning going, that didn't apply to me because I'm not in a position of leadership. God has placed you in a position of leadership, whatever that looks like. The question that becomes for us is not are we leaders, but what does it look like for us to, to lead in the kingdom of God? And the answer, of course, is servant leadership. In God's kingdom, a servant leader is actually defined by Jesus. And he articulates it in this passage, but then he gives us some characteristics that we're called to live. So if we begin to look deeply at this passage, it begins to give us a clear picture of how a servant leader leads. And that's what we're going to explore today. Back in the text, and I want to give you this first characteristic of a servant leader, and then we're going to look at this. Here's that first one. A servant leader leads for God's glory and not our own. Look at verse 20 and 21. So then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, I think we should applaud her in one way. She understood that there was a different kingdom that she was asking for her sons to serve in. But I want you to consider this, because we're not going to look at it, but if you go to verse 17, here's what Jesus just finished doing. He just finished telling the disciples for the third time that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to rise from the dead. That's how the kingdom of God was actually going to come into existence. Now, what was their response They wanted to know if they could have the next two most prominent positions next to Jesus. Consider the fact that Jesus has just shared with them, I have to suffer greatly in order for the kingdom of God to be initiated. Can we be number one and number two? And that question to you might seem mind-boggling until we we begin to to understand and remember the propensity of the human heart for self-glory. We love our own glory. So if that challenges you this morning, let me begin by asking us a question. What does it look like for us to lead for our glory instead of God's? I think we're going to see it come right out of this text because when we're leading for our glory, we are seduced to using manipulation. 
James and John used their mother to get what they wanted. Now, I have no idea. I suppose that they thought coming from her, like, that would go over better. Can't figure that out. But look at what happens. Mom goes to Jesus, and she asks him to grant her request before she asks the question. How many of your kids have done that? Hey, I have a question. Will you say yes? That's, that's what's happening in this text. I love that Jesus just doesn't dismantle her in that moment in, in a fit of rage. He is gentle but firm. I want you to know that a question like that, though, that does not get asked without having already been talked about. It wasn't like that was a spur-of-the-moment thing, right? So at some point, they had some kind of conversation over here, just the three of them, and they, they attempted to do this. Let's figure out how we can get Jesus to do this, but we don't want the other 10 guys to know anything about this. Funny as we hear about it, but think about how that plays out in our own lives. When we want somebody to serve us in some way, and we know that just coming like right out and asking is going to be self-serving, which it is, in case you were wondering, we just try to hide it. We become coy. We devise a plan that uses other people to manipulate to get what we want. If you have ever spent time figuring out to get somebody else to do something that you wanted, you can actually relate to these men. I was really trying to figure out whether or not I was going to illustrate this particular point. I won't give you the details, but let me just tell you this, that um, not this past week, but the week before as my wife was traveling and I was home alone and I'm a big crybaby and I really don't like to be alone and it's okay if I'm traveling, but she was gone and she was working at her mom's house and, and my mind would go to things like, well, what text could I send her that would bring about self-pity? That she... My sweet wife would leave me to help her mother and forget that I even existed. You laugh at me, but you do the exact same thing. You know that there's been times you're like, hmm, how can I get somebody to do what I want? It's convicting. So what was motivating James and John? Here's what was motivated them. Selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glory. See, what they really wanted was to be seen by other people. Their ambition then becomes motivated by this desire for self-glorification. And I said it already. We love the glory of ourself. We want to be thought of well. We want to be liked. We want to be admired. We want to be considered intelligent. We want people to see that we are important so that we begin to feel important. See, for James and John to have the number two and three seats in the kingdom would have been the ultimate in proving that these former fishermen had actually become something. The thought of that position was so enticing, they get their mama to go along with it. I would suppose somehow in some way she wanted it too. I mean, just think about the thought that your sons are the revered ones in the kingdom of God. You know, for me, um, I struggled in school. So for me, it was harder than 
it was for most other kids. Has been my entire life. And I felt dumb. And I don't know if that's your story. I don't even know if you can relate to that. But I can tell you one thing is that the longer that I went in school, the harder it became, the more that I, I really led my life by trying to prove to others and really myself that I wasn't the intellectual failure that I felt life. It could still be a struggle for me. And for me, that the way that that played out is it means my ambition can be driven by my desire for glory. Not greatness as we perceive it in this world, but in my case, I just didn't want to be seen as a failure. I wanted to be applauded by other people. You're not, Aaron, who you think you are. And so it drives you. So what happens is we'll begin to use other people. Aaron began to use other people to get what we want. I desperately wanted the glory of other people's admiration. And you want it too. We're glory hungry. And because all God, glory belongs to God, we're glory thieves. So why is self-glory so dangerous? Simple, let me give this this. Uh, this practical thing, and then we're going to close this point. You can't serve others and yourself at the same time. Can't do it. One will always become what you pursue. The pursuit of self-glory leads to harming other people when we have to use other people to get what we want. And I can say, because I've seen it in my own life, that we will gladly sacrifice somebody else's good if that just means we can get from them what we want. We just don't really want to see it sometimes. We don't want to admit that that's really what we're going after. It's in the deep recesses of our heart. Seeking self-glory may make you feel momentarily adequate. But our pursuit in that will always. I wrote the word in my notes often, but actually I think it brings always, brings conflict, division, resentment, and bitterness to other people. You can't use other people to get what you want and think that you are not going to destroy relationships. The resolution is simple, but the process is very hard. And the gospel is the thing that frees us from making much of us and to making much of Jesus. When we talk about the depravity of our nature, that our sin so separated us from Jesus Christ that there was nothing that we could do to bridge that gap. And into that, it is the good news of the gospel that pierces our soul that makes us new creatures, that brings us alive in Christ. It is that moment that we should always go back to and remember, wait a minute, I was nothing in terms of my sin until Jesus did something about it. We don't deserve the glory for that. But for a servant leader, you have to know this and you have to fight your desires for your self-glory because you know that God's glory is so far more satisfying. Not our glory, but God's glory. Second characteristic of a servant leader is this. Leads with determination, but not domination. Look at verse 22. 
Jesus answered, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Then he said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not, for, is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom the Father has prepared, who has prepared by, by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. And the two brothers, at the two brothers, excuse me. But Jesus said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. When we think about the words determination and domination, I want you to understand this, that determination just means this, firmness of purpose. But domination means the state of being controlled. There's a difference. Jesus shows us the difference when he says to these guys, he says, now listen, you're, are you able to drink from the cup that I am? He's talking about going to the cross there. What he's saying is, you don't understand that what I have to do will be in the world, in the eyes of the world, the ultimate humiliation. He's going to go to the cross. And listen, a Roman cross was not the path to dominant leadership in a worldly kingdom. But it was the only way to usher in God's kingdom. Now, when the other guys hear this, they actually become enraged at this whole conversation. I think most likely probably because they thought too, man, we should be able to get to be the ones that get to be on the right and the left. Like, what did James and John think it? What would cause them to be so full of themselves, not seeing how full of themselves they were in that very moment? Why do they deserve it more than we do? You know, when we talk about the idea of selfish ambition, it's not just something somebody else struggles with. It can quickly rise up in our own hearts and it lurks in the recesses in places that we don't necessarily see it. And then comes Jesus and it's time for him to lay down some truth. Jesus does in this text, he, he takes them all aside. So he's gonna take all, all 12 of them aside at this point. And he says, let's talk about a little bit about what servant leadership looks like and doesn't look like. You know, he says, the world operates by saying that greatness, that comes by us ruling over people. So when we drop back into verse 25, and Jesus says a couple of things. He says, he uses these words, Lord over it, or he says, to exercise authority. In the original languages, here's what those things mean. To rule down like a dictator, or to use your influence to play the tyrant. See, another danger of selfish ambition and self-glory is that our positions of authority can be abused to get what we want through domination. And if these guys are going to lead the church, they've got to get this right. I want us to know that we for sure have to have determination. Jesus had determination. Godly ambition is not wrong. A strong conviction about the truth of God's word actually frames our understanding about how our relationships work at home and in marriage and in the marketplace and in our church. And that is a right conviction for us to have. It is a right conviction for us to never waver from. But I want you to consider how often does domination get relabeled determination? I would say quite a bit. 
It's when we start to dismiss somebody else's concerns about our actions by kind of just slapping the spiritual label on it so that we can cancel the conversation. What does it look like when you're leading? Maybe in your home. It's the father and the husband who's the tyrant and he uses spiritual things to end the argument. It's the mother or kids who use manipulation or guilt to get it whatever it is that they want. Seen in the pastor who builds his own kingdom followers and refuses to listen when he's challenged. We see it play out in all sorts of ways. In small groups, by people who work to undercut leaders. This idea of domination in, in, in servant leadership can come out in physical abuse sometimes, emotional abuse, and spiritual abuse. And it must stop for the people of God. Jesus says as much. Jesus says the way of the world is not the way of God's kingdom. We're going to look at it in a moment, but you'll, you'll see that at the beginning of verse 26, Jesus says this, it shall not be so among you. What is he saying? You're not going to be the tyrant. That's not what the kingdom looks like. You're not to be the dictator. Leadership is servant leadership. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. There is no room for domineering in God's design for servant leadership. So this morning, I would say this, or if you're at home and you're listening to this and the spirit right now is just convicting you, maybe in the ways, dads, that you lead your family, moms, the way that you have used manipulation, the way that that works in the marketplace, whatever that looks like. If that is a pattern in your life that the Spirit of God is convicting you of in this moment, Jesus offers an invitation. An invitation to confess, repent, and believe what the gospel has already declared. The pathway to your humility has been paved by the cross of Christ. It's already finished. challenges we have to choose to live that. I'll give you this third and last characteristic of a servant leader and then we're going to be done. They lead by serving sacrificially. In verse 26, Jesus goes on and he says, obviously talking about the dictatorship. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Be honest. In our world, leaders think that they have achieved greatness by looking at who serves them. And then Jesus comes along and he blows up any, any remaining notion that leadership is in any way about being served. Because what he does in this, in this story is he finishes by telling the guys, you want greatness? Like in God's kingdom, like the, the greatness that actually glorifies God? The key for that is not who serves you, but who you serve. 
But then he adds this caveat that's on the bottom of it. And he said, listen, serving in God's kingdom is more than convenient service. It's sacrificial. It will cost you something. It always does. See, it's one thing for us to just serve out of our abundance, isn't it? Things are going well. I'm not struggling. I've got plenty of resources emotionally and physically, financially. I've got plenty. I could serve out of my abundance all day long. But it's an entirely different bird when it costs you to a place that it's actually sacrificial. John MacArthur talking about this passage says it this way. The sham servant avoids suffering. The true servant accepts it. So what will it cost you? I really want you to listen to and, and not, don't zone out on me here because we're almost done, okay? Because it's going to cost us and sometimes we just need to remember this. It's going to cost us when we serve in the hard places. Cost us when we serve in the uncomfortable places. And in the lonely places. And the demanding places. And the unappreciated places. And it will cost you criticism. And it will cost you humiliation. And it will cost you aggravation. It's going to cost you emotionally. It's going to cost you financially. And it's probably at times going to cost you great sorrow. That's what servant leadership actually looks like in the kingdom of God. And we work so hard sometimes to avoid it. When God has declared that's the path that he has for us as his servants. You know, this week some dear friends of both the prayers and the Lundquist are going to arrive from overseas where they've been serving as missionaries. And I can tell you, having talked to them many times, a lot of their service could be described by the words that we just used. But here's what I know. Their experiences aren't related just to the mission field as much as the reality of serving Christ. So how does that intersect with our life today in this place? It means this, that the characteristic of serving Christ in Winston-Salem will cost you just as much. If you think that's for those who are serving overseas or serving in specific geographies, that that doesn't apply to me, I want you to know that serving in God's kingdom will cost you. It costs pastors right now. Let me be honest with you. It costs pastors who have no idea if the decisions that they're about to make is going to be met with great receptiveness or revolt. It's exhausting. It means it will cost you to follow Christ where you live and where you work and where you play as hostility begins to increase to your biblical worldview. It will cost you. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, it will cost you grief as you are experiencing that grief as you lead your family in Christ's likeness as we navigate this chaotic and crazy world that we're in. I won't go into details, but let me tell you even what I'm so grateful for in my own life is that I've tried to lead my family in Christ's likeness. Not all of my kids, believe it or not, have followed that path. 
And I've prayed and I've agonized and I've stressed and I've had moments of deep grief. And by the grace of God, I've seen one that has been in rebellion start to come back to the Lord. But here's what I want you to know. You serve your kids. It's going to cost you and it's probably going to hurt sometimes. It's going to cost us as a church and as individual people to stand up for vulnerable children and for the marginalized and for the least of these. And it's going to cost other people, it's going to cost you rather to serve other people in this church who you disagree with. You know why? Because it'll cost you to serve Christ. So don't be fooled to thinking that that wherever God has placed you and purposed you won't require sacrifice. That's a naive assumption because the path of serving in the kingdom is sacrifice. That's why Jesus would go on and say you only have to look to him to actually see what servant leadership looks like as he's going to walk the road to Golgotha. The one who will go to the cross is both our example and the reason and the privilege, the the reason that we have for the privilege, the privilege of sacrifice. So what is it we do when it feels like serving sacrificially is just more than we can handle? Because I'm going to suppose that right now, in this moment, one of the most difficult and challenging things for us to do is to serve other people. I've gone through the last several weeks at times drained. I bet you that's your experience in some way as well. The last thing I want to do sometimes is to serve other people. So here's what I want us to know. First of all, we just have to understand that sacrifice and suffering is a place the Lord has us so that you will look to him and not yourself. That our eyes must be upon Christ. So I was moved even as we were singing Waymaker. That we begin to understand that while we don't see it and in the middle of some of your greatest agony today, you don't see it and God is on the throne and he is still working and he is after your good. And that is the place that God has you. But secondly, you need to just become self-aware. Are you working to avoid serving other people just because it's a sacrifice? Oh, it's going to cost me. Oh, I can't do that. I want no part of that. When things get better, I'll step back in. And I would, I would challenge you with this. If that's your posture, how's the Lord calling you to respond to that revelation? Third and last thing is we need to look to the cross and consider eternity. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians a verse that I have clung to at more times in my life probably than any other. When he says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. None of us could say that we probably have suffered to the extent that the Apostle Paul suffered. And in those moments he says they're light and they're momentary. See, I'm like, Aaron, I don't really feel like it's light and momentary. All oh, but in the grand scheme of eternity it is. But it's not because of this text that we just looked 
And we just say, okay, okay, I gotta remember, it's light and it's momentary. No, it actually has a point. The light and momentary affliction that Paul speaks about is preparing you for something. And what is it preparing for you? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There will be a day when we see Jesus face to face and everything that you are suffering and have struggled with and has sacrificed for to serve not yourself, but Jesus in the kingdom of God will become worth it. In fact, it will pale in comparison to the glory that is revealed. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Light and momentary affliction, preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have challenged and encouraged us this morning. Father, we, we ask that you would stir in our hearts that in these next moments, as we close, even in this last worship song, Father, would we dismantle our own self-glory and would we give you all the glory and honor and praise that you are due. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.